0: Well, good morning church. It is so good to be with you and I hope you all had a wonderful uh, holiday weekend eating a bunch of hot dogs blowing some stuff up uh, and enjoying that It really is such a special thing to have everybody here together one service It feels like it feels like old times and uh, hopefully you get to see some people maybe you haven't seen uh, in in a while Uh, And so so great to have the Fultz family here uh, with us this morning and I really do hope that as a church, we would not be a church that just checks the box off for global missions uh, every year, but we are kind of like an aircraft carrier. We are ready and, uh, with, and continually re- ready to provide prayer support and always ready to send help uh, in time of need. As you just heard wonderfully read, this morning's text for this Sunday of Reach is John 12. Uh, which really is just our next text in our study of John's gospel. And by God's providence, uh, it fits very, very nicely with this theme this morning. Uh, so before we dive into all of God's has for us this morning, let's go to Him in prayer. Jesus, you are indeed worthy. You are worthy of all glory, all honor, and all praise. You are worthy of our whole lives. And as we examine what it costs Jesus to save the nations, would we be stirred up to examine whether we are truly willing to follow you in your mission to bring all peoples to yourself? Holy Spirit, would you guide your weak servant as I seek to speak your word this morning, and would you guide our wandering hearts into right understanding of it? We trust that you are able to do far more abundantly than we could ever ask or imagine. And so it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Seventy-five years ago, in the early morning of June 6, 1944, Lieutenant Richard Winters and his company of Army paratroopers of the 101st Airborne Division began taking heavy fire over the beaches of Normandy. Unable to see their drop zone because of low-hanging clouds and with bullets bombarding their aircraft, the green jump light went on. And one by one, men parachuted behind enemy lines, knowing that once they hit the ground, they would be surrounded by the enemy. After years of war on multiple fronts, this D-Day invasion was the Allied forces' plan to begin liberation of the European nations under Hitler's control, hoping that this would bring a swift end to the war. Thousands of men counted the cost and were ready to give their lives for the sake of that mission. As we look at our passage today, we will see that Jesus is going to head into hostile enemy territory and send into motion the final stages of his divine mission on earth. However, his mission was not to liberate a nation from an oppressive human regime, but to liberate people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from every generation, and from the greatest enemy this world has ever seen. And Jesus will accomplish this mission not through a physical combat, but by being lifted up high on a cross. Uh, Maybe you're like me when you watch those World War II documentaries, I always wonder, you know, would I have the bravery, would I have the guts to jump out of one of those planes to, to rush the beaches of Normandy for the sake of the greater mission? I hope I would. I don't know. But today, as we look at our text, we'll be faced with another mission. It's a heavenly mission. And we'll have to ask ourselves, are we ready to follow Jesus for the sake of his glorious mission? Are we prepared to give our lives for God's mission to save the nations, to liberate people from every tribe, tongue, and nation from the clutches of sin and death and to bring glory to his name? We we have a large text today, and so we're going to try to unpack it as best we can in three sections. First, we'll see a nation cry out in verses 12 through 19. We'll see the nations inquire in verses 20 through 26, and then finally the nations saved in verses 27 through 36. And my hope for today is that we as a church would consider what God might be calling us to do for the sake of his mission and glory. So first, a nation cries out. Look at verses uh, 12 with me. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so they took palm trees and branches and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Uh, This scene is most likely very familiar to us, right? We know it as Palm Sunday, or as your Bibles may say, it's the triumphal entry as Jesus enters into Jerusalem uh, in, in the week leading up to Passover. Passover being the yearly commemoration of God liberating his people from slavery in Egypt. Yet, as was foreshadowed last week by Mary's extravagant gift, Jesus is not heading into Jerusalem for a king's coronation, but a criminal's death. Jesus' popularity, we remember, has kind of hit a bowling point with the religious establishment right? They, they feel their influence and power is slowly slipping away. And so they put their plot to kill Jesus into motion. And we've seen throughout John's gospel that attempts on his life before, but now Jesus here is willingly heading behind enemy lines into the stronghold of those seeking to kill him all in accordance with his father's plan. In real time, I think it's hard for us to imagine with all the fanfare described here in these verses that in less than a week, Jesus would be completely abandoned by everyone and left alone to die. The crowds that would be here uh, in Jerusalem for a Passover feast during the first century were estimated by one Jewish historian to be over two million people. So even if that's not a a perfect estimation, uh, the text here tells us it's a large crowd. There's a lot of people here. and And we see this multitude They heard that Jesus was coming, and so they go out to meet him to give him a king's welcome. And they quote from Psalm 118 and cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Hosanna literally means give salvation now, save us. The crowd, again, famously waves these palm branches, you know, which in the first century, the, the palm branch had become a, a Jewish national sy- uh, symbol representing hope that the Messianic liberator had actually arrived. The crowds believe that Jesus was their liberator, and they cry together for him to save them from their oppressors, the Romans. Now, if you remember back in John 6, this is not the first time that a large crowd has sought to crown Jesus king. Right, after Jesus feeds the multitude, we read in John six fourteen and 15, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is coming to the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The people of Israel, they were, they were desperate. For years, the Roman had occupied and oppressed the nation of Israel. They had desecrated their temple They had heavily taxed the people without representation. And now, uh, a guy who could turn water into wine, who can make the blind see and raise the dead, was now here. If there was ever someone who could finally push the Romans out of Israel, it was Jesus. And what a better time to do it, right? It's Passover. It's like a sophisticated, uh, you know, 4th of July on steroids for, for the Jews. So yeah, and, and potentially a million plus people are here gathered under a common cause. Why not take up arms right now and have King Jesus restore power to Israel? Why not bring the fulfillment of the promise of God to Israel right now here and there? Yet as we see, Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem does not inspire a revolution Look at verses 14 and 15 with me as John quotes from Zechariah 9. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. I remember growing up uh, in the uh, city of Troy, Michigan, we would always go to the 4th of July parade, actually in uh, a neighboring town of Clawson, Michigan. And, and I always remember every parade, right, you'd have the standard fire trucks come through, you'd have the marching bands, you'd have clowns throwing, throwing candy at the children. And, and every year, though, you'd also have uh, the mayor or a politician, he, he would ride in on a nice fancy convertible, right? Now imagine if the mayor of Indianapolis or Carmel or Fisher's Rode in through the parade last week on a beautiful 1996 Chevy Lumina. A lovely 90s interior, nice bench seat in the front, you know, manual locks and windows. For some of us that may communicate, you know, we have a very fiscally responsible mayor here, you know, he's, he's not trying to be lavish here. But others, what would we really be thinking? You know, the crowd might be thinking, you know, is this the best we can do? Is this the best you can do, Mayor. You know, is the city hurting for money or something? You know, show a little pride in, in, in your city, here you know, show some strength. You know, instill confidence in, in the in your constituents. And similarly, God's people expected their king to ride into their capital city on a war horse, or at least a camel. You know, looking uh, like he's ready to inspire the masses. And said Jesus rides into Jerusalem the city of David the city of kings on a baby donkey. One commentator notes that if Jesus was an average height for that time his feet would most likely be touching the ground and so he's going to have to tuck his legs back you know as he's as he's riding and he may not even be at eye level with the people that are cheering his name. Jesus' entrance made it clear that he first did not come to bring a political salvation or to take an earthly throne, but rather as a humble, gentle king. A king that would come to die as a servant, as a spotless lamb, giving his life, not only for the nation of Israel, but for all nations, even the Romans. As I mentioned here, John is quoting from Zechariah 9.9, 9, and it's often important when we see an Old Testament passage quoted in Scripture that it's good to look back at the context of when that uh Quote was given, and it gives us an understanding of what the biblical author really wants us to understand. In this case, the surrounding verses really help us to see the full breadth of what Jesus is communicating about his mission. Zechariah 9, 9 through 10, it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. So by fulfilling this prophecy, Jesus is communicating that he is a humble king, and that he has come to proclaim peace, and not just to Israel, but to the nations, and that his rule, his kingship, his kingdom will extend far beyond Jerusalem. Jesus will not bring bring peace through war, but by destroying the power of Satan's sin and death on the cross. He makes peace not through the sword, but by giving up his life as a ransom for many. And church, this is the good news of, of the gospel, is it not? That we want to bring to all nations. Our mission is to tell everyone who has ears to hear that you can find true peace by surrendering your life to this humble King Jesus. Our sin has made ourselves enemies of God. But as scripture reminds us, but God being rich in mercy, even while we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die for us that we can be reconciled to God. Therefore, as Romans 5 tells us, since we have been justified by faith, we have what? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So friends, are are you at peace with God today? Or are you still looking for peace in something else or someone else? You will not find lasting peace in a political victory or a matured retirement account, but only in this King Jesus He may not be the king you expected, but he is the king that you need. And he brings the peace that we all need. On this first Palm Sunday, the the nation of Israel cried out to their king for salvation from the Romans. But five days later, we will see Jesus cry out to his father and deliver a greater salvation, not only to Israel, but to all nations. As we look at our text, we see the crowds, and the disciples both don't really understand what Jesus is, is doing here and what he's communicating. They will not understand all that Jesus is doing until after he is raised from the dead. And predictably, the Pharisees are beside themselves as they see people continually to glorify Jesus and telling, telling everybody about his miracles. They're kind of like jealous teenagers being supplanted by a much cooler uh, new kid from out of town, Right? They bemoan the crowds coming to Jesus, and we see this in verse 19. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The, the theme, as we've seen in John's gospel, gospel often, is that they, people speak better than they know often, and these words of the Pharisees actually set up our next scene as we see the nations of the world indeed actually going after Jesus. Look at verses 20 and 26 and we'll see the nations inquire of Jesus. Verses 20 and 22. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So now John shows us That there are more than just Israelites here at Jerusalem for the Passover, but there are also Greeks and presumably worshipers of God. Now, the term Greeks here, again, does not necessarily mean that they were from the the country of Greece, but rather it's a general title used to describe any Gentile from the Greek speaking world. And we presume that they, again, have heard about Jesus, and so they go uh, to Philip and ask to see him. Why do they ask Philip. Well, we can't be sure the text doesn't tell us, but we can assume because Philip actually has a a Greek name, Uh, he may have very well been bilingual, and so maybe one of the easiest disciples to approach. But instead of bringing the Greeks right to Jesus, Philip goes to Andrew. And so if you know anything about Andrew, we've seen him in in John's Gospel before, and Andrew is always bringing people to Jesus. He brings his brother Simon Peter to Jesus, as well as the boy with the five loaves and the two fish. Church, and I I pray, just as an aside, that I hope that we would be like Andrew, that we would be people that always love to point people to Jesus, no matter what background they have, no no matter where they came from, no matter what motives they might carry, or, or anything, whoever they are, that we would just be a church that points people to Jesus. And so Philip, you know, gets, back, gets them back up, and he goes to Andrew, and they bring the request of the Greeks to Jesus. Now, this may seem like a fairly ordinary scene, but there are two things, I think, that make it very extraordinary. First, you'll, you'll need to remember that the Gentiles, again, all non-Jews, were still understood to be outside the covenant family of God. Even God-fearing Gentiles were not allowed to enter into the inner courts of the temple where the Jews worshipped. There was a literal wall separating the Jews from the Gentiles who desired to be at the temple. And any Jew who crossed that barrier was subject to the penalty of death. The Gentiles were literally restricted from drawing near to the presence of God. So even though we've seen Jesus break social norms as he engages outcasts and Gentiles all throughout the book of John, we need to recognize that this request from the Greeks is actually loaded with implications. Second, the scene involving the Greeks is extraordinary because of the way Jesus responds to this request. Look at verses 23 through 26 with me. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Have you ever asked somebody uh, a question that you thought was quite simple? And then about, you know, three seconds into the answer, you're like, oh, I'm going to get a lot more than I bargained for with that, <laughs> with that question. That's exactly what we see here uh, and what the disciples get. Jesus, right, he doesn't respond directly to the Greeks. He doesn't say a quick, yes, or Okay, come to me. I'll tell you all about me. But what does he do? He sees this inquiry from the Greeks as a divinely appointed time in his ministry. For Jesus, this is the sign that his ministry on earth is coming to an end and his hour has come to be glorified. Throughout John's gospel, we've seen Jesus cloak his glory and ask many to stay silent about his majesty because his hour, right, had not yet come. But now, as the nations draw near, his hour has come to put his glory on display for all the world to see. Like, this, like his humble entry into Jerusalem, his glory would not be displayed as we would expect, right? When we honor someone, what do we do? We usually generally throw them a party, right? We have some important people stand up and say nice things uh, about them. When we honor a military hero, the, the president will hang a, a medal around their neck in a you know, very special ceremony with powerful people in attendance. Yet for Jesus, the glory of the Son of Man, a, a title not connected to his humanity but more his divinity from Daniel 7, his glory would be manifested as he hangs on a cross and hangs alone. What will look like a moment of greatest humiliation will be Jesus' greatest triumph, his greatest glory. And you'll see in verse 24, Jesus used this illustration of a seed that must be planted into the ground in order to bear fruit. A seed, right, cannot bear fruit without first being put into the ground, right? A farmer doesn't just take the seed and just hang it up on a shelf one day and just like, look at my seeds. Like, no, he has to, he has to go and he's got to plant it into the ground symbolizing its death, And Jesus is saying that his death is necessary in order to yield a harvest of nations. And the illustration extends even further to anyone who would follow after Jesus. Jesus then tells both Jew and Greek that we must hate our lives in order to keep it, and we must serve in order to be honored. For many of us, maybe we've heard this, the paradox of the Christian life uh, before, and it kind of sounds nice and it sounds very pious and religious, but we ought to stop in our tracks and, and make sure we paused and actually consider what Jesus is saying. How, how in the world do you hate your life to keep it? You know, dying, Jesus does not equal living. You know, the math does not add up. So how do we interpret this? Is Jesus really saying that we ought to hate ourselves? We you know be miserable all the time in order to gain eternal life. I don't think that's what he's saying. In order to understand this, we, we first need to understand that The juxtaposition of love and hate is actually a common Hebrew idiom that is meant to communicate a strong contrast and not necessarily the ideas of love and hate that that we understand today. Jesus is using this literary tool to get our attention. For Jesus, to love your life is to tell God that you think it's better to live life apart from God on earth than to be with him in the new heavens and the new earth. It's a way of saying that you reject God's authority over your life. It's to see the world in complete opposite way that the Apostle Paul sees it. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To love your life is to live for only for yourself and to die and seeing death as a loss. Jesus is rejecting the worldview that you can live your best life now. And the lifestyle that accompanies that phrase I think is old now, but you only live once or or YOLO, right? Living with a a YOLO mentality gives yourself license to experience all the world has to offer no matter what God says about it. Because according to this worldview, what you do in this life does not matter for eternity. in contrast, Jesus calls us to reject the notion that the central mission of our lives is our own happiness. He calls his disciples to hate or despise the fleeting pleasures of this world and to hope in the glory and the promises that he gives us in the next. That to receive honor from men in this life will pale in comparison to the honor that the Father will give on the last day. Therefore, we ought to be people that hold our life and our plans with open hands without the fear of missing out we can give ourselves as a living sacrifice to God because it's in dying to ourselves that we actually truly live. Uh, I think many people in our world will will scoff uh, at the Christian lifestyle of, of delayed gratification, right? You know, why wait till you're married? You know, why not cheat to get ahead? You know, why deny what your heart wants right now if it's there for you? But we know God tells us that he uses what is foolish in the eyes of the world to bring about the glory of God and our good. He uses ordinary people who believe the promises of God for the future to bring about the salvation of many. And so it's, it's very fitting today that we are joined by, by our missionaries who give us an example of holding the comforts of this world with an open hand, believing that whatever comfort they might, might, they might miss out on this life will yield a greater harvest in the next? Again, this is not to put them on some sort of pedestal, but to remind us that anything that God calls us to sacrifice in this life is worth it. And so then, as we as a church focus on God's global mission over these two weeks, I want us to consider what God might be calling us to sacrifice in order to participate in his great mission to save the nation's. I think for some of us, dying to this life may be truly answering God's call to move to a foreign land and to take the gospel to those who have never heard. For others, it's stepping out in faith and going on a vision trip. For others, it will be sacrificing a new car or a new TV or the illusion of financial security in order to support those who are bringing the gospel to the nations. For others, it's going to be risking right popularity at school, sacrificing maybe friendships, or stepping out into uncomfortable situations in order for Jesus to be made known. So I hope this week, in the next two weeks, you ask the Lord, "What what has God calling you for His great mission?" And for all of us, I, I want this prayer from the Valley of Vision to to remind us that of the paradox of this Christian life, that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is a victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision, that we can find God's light in our darkness, his life in our death, his joy in our sorrow, his grace in our sin, his riches in our poverty and his glory in our valley. Church, the Christian life is, is a paradox. We must die in order for fruit, the harvest to be reaped, and we see this in Jesus' life. So, so far in our text, right, we've seen the nations cry out. We've seen the nations inquire and that Jesus' hour has come. And finally, as we turn to our last section in 27 through 36, we see that the nations are saved. We won't have time to go over this entire section in detail this morning, but I want us to at least briefly see these three things from the section. I want us to look at the cost of this salvation, the accomplishment of this salvation, and the call to be light of his salvation. First, the cost of this salvation. Uh, we, are, we already know that what it will cost Jesus to bring salvation to, for both Jew and Greek, it will cost him his life. But we're reminded in verse 27 That this is not something that was just easy for Jesus to do. Look at verse 27. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. I think too often uh, growing up in religious circles and being very familiar with the cross, we forget how difficult it was for Jesus to actually complete this mission of salvation. Jesus, right, is both fully God and fully man. That means he had the full range of human sanctified emotion. Jesus dealt with real turmoil in his heart as he contemplated the pain and the suffering that he would have to endure in order to save the nations. And this short prayer of Jesus, uh, if you you might have thought about it, it mirrors the, the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane when he is sweating drops of blood before he is arrested. You see him even kind of preaching to himself, reminding himself that the cross is the reason why he came. And that no, no matter what, he must continue. He was willing to endure it all for the sake of the glory of his father's name. So I wonder this morning, what, what are we willing to endure in order for the father's name to be glorified in us? We will, will, will we destroy the sin in our life? Will we repent of the secret sin. And we ought to remind ourselves today that whatever God is calling you to give up, whatever God is calling you to endure for the sake of his name, he promises us that he will give us the empowering spirit and we will be able to persevere to the end. The cost of saving the nations was great, but also what was accomplished. Look in verses 31 and 32. We see what, Salvation accomplished. It says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the rule of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. We see here that Jesus, will, all he will accomplish on the cross. He judges the world. He casts out the ruler of the world and he draws the world. At the cross, Jesus draws the line between the condemned and the vindicated. If you trust Jesus, your judgment is complete in Christ. The judge has declared you guiltless because of Jesus. But if you have never trusted in Christ, if you never trust in Christ, you stand condemned both by your sin and by your rejection of the offer of forgiveness that Jesus freely gives to you. Therefore, trust in him and accept this offer of forgiveness. We also see at the cross that Jesus guaranteed that Satan's days are numbered. At the cross, Jesus destroyed Satan's power over God's people. Satan still can tempt us. He can deceive us, but he cannot snatch us out of the Father's hand. Our accuser has no say in our future anymore. We have passed from death to life. And even though Satan's final day has not yet come, we know it is coming soon for he did not succeed in thwarting the plan of God and his salvation. Jesus has cast him out. And lastly, at the cross, we see Jesus draw people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to himself. And and now I understand this to be an, an effectual drawing. In other words, when Jesus was lifted up to the cross, he actually secured and guaranteed the homecoming of his sheep, the people of his pasture in other words at his death he not only made it possible to offer salvation freely and truly to anyone who believes but his death also secures what jesus said it would in john six thirty-seven, when he says all that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me i will never cast out no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and i will raise him up on the last day jesus makes it plain that the unintended prophecy of, of Caiaphas that we saw in John eleven fifty two would actually come to pass, that Jesus would not die for just the nation, but to gather into one, the children of God who are scattered abroad. And therefore, because we believe what the cross has accomplished in the saving power of the cross, we can boldly send missionaries into the tribes and nations that have never heard of Jesus with the expectation that some will respond positively to the gospel and their names will be written in a Lamb's book of life. To be clear again, Jesus is not saying that all people are going to be saved, but at the cross, he secured salvation for people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And finally, we'll close with this. As the nations, as God saves the nations, he calls us to bring his light to the nations. Look at verse 35. And so Jesus said to them, the light, that being Jesus, is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Jesus will not be on earth much longer. He, and he exhorts the crowd to believe in him so that we may become sons of light, sons and daughters of light. And not overcome, be overcome by the darkness. So those who, who walk with Jesus, who believe that he has died and rose again, are, are adopted into God's family and become sons and daughters of light. Jesus earlier proclaimed that he is the light of the world, and now his disciples are to carry his light, as we saw in, in, if you see in Acts 1:8, to Jerusalem, to Judea, and to the ends of the earth. In the Sermon on the Mount, right, he calls us to be salt and light of the world. True sons and daughters of light ought to restrain the darkness of this world wherever they go, that people would see your good deeds in this world and they would glorify God in heaven. So our mission as sons and daughters of light is to lift high the name of Jesus and shine his light in every corner of the earth, proclaiming the good news of Christ in both word and deed to anyone without exception. And my prayer uh, for this church during this, again, this global missions focus is that we would consider what God might be calling us to do for the sake of his glory and mission, to gather the nations to himself. And whether it's committing to to pray for the Fultzes, for the Humphreys and supporting our missionaries or getting involved in our ESL program, or just inviting non-believing neighbors to the, the cookout. Together, as a church, we need to lift high the name of Jesus so that the world might see and believe for we know that one day our king will come again and this time he will not be riding on a baby donkey but he will be coming in the clouds with glory on a white horse and at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father let's pray Jesus, we thank you for this word this morning. We praise your name because you are truly worthy of all honor and glory and praise. Lord Jesus, thank you for the cross where you took our sin upon yourself so that we may be called sons and daughters of light. Lord, would you help us today to participate in your mission to bring your light and glory to the nations? whether we are here, at home, or abroad, may we count the cost of following you and be ready to lose our lives for the glory of your name and the salvation of the nations. It's in your son's most matchless name we pray. Amen.